Let's all stand as we take a look at Acts chapter 1. We are going through this book verse by verse. We are going to be in verses 12 through 14 today. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Father, as we approach this passage, or any passage for that matter, it's our desire that we let it speak for itself. We explain it clearly. We seek to apply it. Father, forgive me for if there's any time in which I add to it that's not what your text is saying. Help us to have hearts that are yearning to not just have knowledge, but, Lord, that we might have uh, an openness to obey, to walk in the truth therein. Lord, we acknowledge that as people, we have wills of our own that often are at odds with you. May that not be the case. May we not make excuses, but may we take responsibility for our own actions, for our own spiritual, relational health, and allow you to work in us so that we can reflect the very character of Christ in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said in agreement. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There's nothing quite like a funeral to bring out the best and the worst in people. Some family relationships are so chilly that a funeral can feel like a meat locker. Done plenty of them, more than I care to count. Others are able to share the grief in ways that engender love and care uh, for family members. Some families argue about the possessions that are going to be disseminated. Uh, Others I've witnessed gather around a meal and reminisce about stories of the loved one that has deceased. Funerals have a way of making us raw, of kind of uh, taking off the layers and revealing the true state of relationships that already exist. I think of that when I think of the scene that we've just read in Acts 1, 12 through 14. This is a beleaguered group of followers of Jesus. They were grieving the loss of their leader. They are a flock without a shepherd. Now, there was never more meaning packed in a little phrase than what we have in verse 12 when it says, then they returned to Jerusalem. A small contingency has just witnessed the ascension of Christ on Mount Olivet. It's been 40 days since the most heart-wrenching episodes you can imagine of the, the capture, the arrest, the torture, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. The hopes and dreams that they had of a coming kingdom are now hanging on by a mere thread, and that was because of the promise of Christ 
that he had given them earlier. They could not have possibly known what was up ahead, but all they knew is that Jesus said to wait. To wait. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. A Sabbath day's journey is not a measurement of time. It is a measurement of distance. You see, the rabbis, after the Old Testament was written, added something to the Sabbath laws that you could not travel over 2,000 cubits. And, of course, we all know how big a cubit is. It's about 2,000 of them. equates to about three-quarters of a mile, and it's just about the distance. And if you look up on the picture from the top of Mount Olivet, this is the uh, modern-day Jerusalem, and we're looking at the eastern side of Jerusalem. It's about three-quarters of a mile walk. And that's what he means by a Sabbath day's journey. It's a certain distance that they were walking. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of that, I think of, I wish that I could have been there in that walk. That had to be the longest three-quarters of a mile for those people that traveled that, considering all that had taken place. I'd love to have heard what they had to say in that three-quarters of a mile. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, or Peter, and Judas, the son of James. It says they went to the upper room. Now, we don't know if this is the same upper room that was during the Passover. Many assume it is, but it doesn't say that, so we can't say with certainty that it is. And it's probably good that it doesn't tell us, or else it might feed some of our mystical fantasies that would assume that you have to be in a special location in order to have a connection with God. And it's just not so. In fact, Jesus said that when you worship me, you worship me in spirit and in truth. In other words, it used to be you had to be in a, in a, in a temple or tabernacle to have the presence of God. But now under this new covenant, you can worship God anywhere in spirit. You don't have to be in this building or any other building. In the first century, the largest rooms were usually on an upper floor so that the smaller rooms on the lower story could support the weight. So they are in this large upper room. Now we're given a list of the remaining disciples, minus Judas the betrayer, who's obviously different from the Judas who's the son of James. And we read of the same list, or at least the same people, in Luke 6, verses 12 through 16, only there is a difference in the order of the names. Now, it could be just a random thing, or it could be by design. Perhaps it was to convey that it doesn't matter whose name first. We're not interested in top billing, such as the argument that they had, remember, during the Passover. Who's going to have the first seat? Who's going to be number one? There are no superstars in this list. Just ordinary people. In fact, we could say this, that when, when our hearts are way too concerned about our esteem or recognition, it's like letting the air out of our tires in terms of making ministry progress. And our passage tells us that they 
were staying in this upper room. And verse 15 tells us that there are about 120 people in this upper room. They were obeying Jesus by waiting in Jerusalem. 120 of them. Now remember, these, a large portion of them, are the same people who abandoned Jesus at the cross, except for John and Mary. There had to be a sense of of failure along with the grief that they were experiencing. Of course, we know that Peter had denied Jesus three times. Thomas had doubted that Jesus was actually risen from the dead. Now, certainly they had 40 days since these events, but still, you know how things linger about our failures, right? James and John had argued about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom and what position would they have there. And then there's the issue of Mary and some of her family members, the mother of Jesus, and how her family related to the rest of the disciples. We read about, for instance, an episode in Mark that's very interesting. It says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Speaking of the, of, of the disciples and with Jesus, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, Jesus, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, we don't know for sure. The Greek does not let us know whether that was Jesus' own family saying he's out of his mind or, or the crowd saying he was out of his mind. But either way, his family was trying to gather him away from all of this to protect him. And we can surmise or thinking, you know what? The disciples are not protecting him, so we got to do it for ourselves. Could have easily thought the disciples just weren't doing a good job of taking care of Mary's son. And then you have John, who at the cross was given the responsibility to take care of the mother of Jesus. Now imagine what's going through his head in terms of all that that entails. And so you have the mix of this 120 people, and add to that, you know, rich and poor, young and old. And given these circumstances, given all of the experiences that they had, this could potentially be an emotionally charged powder keg ready to blow. But that's not what happens. That's not what takes place. In fact, something strange happened. It it wasn't division. It was unity. They didn't explode in anger at one another. They didn't get in each other's grill. They unified. All of these people had a common fidelity to Christ. And now he was gone. And they were told to sit and wait. This was not a crowd of thousands stuck within a room. It was about 120, and, you know, actually sociologists tell us that that's probably a little bit more than the number of people we can all know by name in a particular room, remember their names. Yeah, they say it's about 80, but it's, it's real close to that, which, by the way, is maybe one of the reasons why over 75% of the churches in America are under 100 
People want to know one another. But here they are in a room, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, familiar with most of the people in the room. Now, if they didn't share it verbally, they could at least share experientially their own disappointments, their hopes, their loneliness, their fears, their grief. And I would bet since it, we assume it was an extended time that they were there, they verbally shared it as well. But even if they didn't, all you need sometimes is just to have somebody with you. You know, if you're in the hospital or, or you're, you're in deep grief, sometimes you don't want anybody speaking. You just want somebody there with you and you know they understand. And that's all you need. I don't need you to read me anything. Don't need you to give me advice. Just be there. United. Besides praying, it's likely that they shared things together. I mean, how else could rich and poor, people of esteem and people in kind of the lower class, have touched each other so deeply, have come together and unified, if it were not because of something supernatural taking place? Now, we can gather from this, my friends, that there is no unity without waiting on God to show us our own hearts. We look at recent events in our country, and instead of angrily, and not that there aren't reasons to be angry, but lashing out, wait on God to show you what's in your own heart. Perhaps the best thing that's happened here amongst the church leaders in Springfield as we've gathered together across racial boundaries. And the best thing we can do is listen and keep our mouths shut. I think I shared a story with you before when one of the leaders of the group that I'm meeting with, who's a black man, talked about going to a couple grocery stores to have people donate for our event. Couldn't get anywhere. And asked me if I would go, and of course, I had no problem having people donate. You can make up your own mind as to why that was. Former leader of the NAACP was there, and all he said was, "Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He didn't have to say a word, (laughs) and I knew exactly what he was saying. And I could understand a little bit more deeply as to what our dear brothers and sisters go through. You can learn a lot if you just be quiet, wait, listen, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. There's no unity without waiting. There's no unity without prayer. There's no unity without being in the same room and humbly working out our differences, realizing that there are things far more important than our personal agendas. Now, it's not that every effort to unify is effective. We know that's not so. In fact, the scriptures say, when at all possible, be at peace with all men, which tells us it's not always possible. Sometimes people don't want unity. Sometimes people don't want to get along. 
And you can't make people do that. But we can be sure of this, that unity does not happen without waiting on God in humble submission. And then even facing our detractors. My brothers and sisters, are there maybe even those in this room that you need to ask for forgiveness because you've been a cause for pain? Are there people that maybe in your family or outside of this facility that you need to get in contact with? See, here's the thing. How can we expect the Spirit of God to move in our lives if there is blockage in our spiritual and emotional life? I don't think I'm reading too much in the text that that there was not a whole lot of that, you know, anger and bitterness towards one another in that upper room. That they had had time to work this out, if not right there. But unity does not happen without that. We are responsible to make sure that the Holy Spirit can flow freely in our lives. There's a time for waiting. There's a time for action. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's here in verse 14 we learn that Mary was here, the mother of Jesus, and then her sons were present in the upper room. By the way, it's the last time Mary is ever mentioned in the scripture. Nowhere are we asked to worship her or venerate her, but instead Mary, along with the rest of them, gets on her knees and beseeches the Lord and waits on the Holy Spirit. And Luke goes out of his way to let us know that there are women present in this upper room experience. Something that normally women were relegated to the back. Women were not a part of the the, the regular operations of, of religious life. But here, Luke is making sure we know that the women were an essential part. In fact, we know that women were essential at the resurrection, being some of the first witnesses on the scene. And women would prove to be critical in this fledgling church, present at critical junctures, ministering. No one is to be excluded from the working of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, no one has an inside track because they're family or because they have money or because of a particular religious upbringing. God offers himself to all to enjoy his communion, to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. If we will humbly confess our sins, bow down before him. All the women married the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Notice our passage says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together. Luke wants to make it plain to us that unity was taking place right here. They were of one accord together. 
And that experience is divinely connected to a devotion to prayer. That, that word for devoted actually means to, to persist, to persevere in prayer. It's another way of just saying they were praying constantly. Whether it's prayer in the life groups, prayer in the families, praying individually, praying as a congregation, it was just a regular part of life and should be a part of our lives. We could say it this way, that a a group that does not pray together has no reason to expect unity to be a primary experience. Unity does not happen without praying together. And by the way, I've seen the opposite happen. I remember having a group in our group in our home years ago, and there was conflict. Uh, you might even call some of these people enemies, if you will. They'd taken positions and made it personal, and I said, hey, let's pray. Let's pray. And they didn't want to do that. It's a pretty good sign. You got to be willing to, to pray together to allow there to be healing and unity. What I find particularly intriguing about this passage is when it took place right after the ascension and that, and that they were still waiting on the Holy Spirit to fill them. I don't want to read too much into this, but it was right after a great ministry exploit, the ascension. And yet that was not enough to, to fuel them to go on in ministry. And I think there's something there for us that what is it that fuels us? When I, you could be a, a life group leader, a, a teacher, or whatever. And, and I think it's true that we, we look for a particular manifestation, whether it's a, a response from people, and then that's the encouragement we need to keep going. And I think then... It's not too far of a trip to try to generate on our own these spiritual highs. So, in essence, we are trying to manufacture the work of the Spirit. I was talking to somebody last night who led worship at another church, uh, not here in town, so don't worry about it. And they said that they were told by the leadership, now, we need you to say this and do this carefully crafting how, and I'm using my words, to manipulate the congregation. You have to say this to get this response. But see, creating, I mean, hopefully that's obviously wrong, right? I would even call it evil. But the, the highs of ministry experience are never to be the fuel to help us persevere. He chooses to work in us by his sovereign will. Not because, you know, we're something special versus somebody else or because I have greater skill or loveliness compared to maybe somebody else who doesn't have as many manifestations. And again, I'm trying to lean away from even defining what those manifestations are because it could be wide open. You can have a person who's very faithful and have very little 
fruit, as it were, in a ministry, and another one have tremendous fruit, does it mean that this person was less faithful, had less skill? And all I'm saying is, not necessarily. The disciples had witnessed a great miracle. You would think they would be energized. You would think they would be ready to rock and roll for Jesus now. And he says, wait. There's something more. You need the Holy Spirit. You know, isn't it true that often the Lord will allow disappointment? He'll even allow loneliness in ministry. He'll allow conflict to bring us back to earth in terms of ministry? What a better way to remember that than to be in a room of 120 people who were competing and some were fighting together and now they're waiting on a movement of God in their life. See, we often think that when the church disappoints, when the marriage lets us down, when the conflicts arise, we are to cut and run and find a new experience. Perhaps that's the time that God is asking us to wait for him to move in our hearts and to love at a level previously not experienced in our lives. Perhaps that is the time God is asking us to forgive that which we previously thought was unforgivable. When we cut and run and seek a new experience, now talking about a ministry experience, as our fuel, is it possible what we're actually seeking is control and not living by faith? When we cut and run, are we demanding that God sweeten the pot before we obey him, before we persevere? not only possible, it's likely. We refuse to learn and grow in the now because we are trying to construct for ourselves a self-manufactured life instead of the one that God has given us that includes disappointment and conflict. Prayer is the lifeline when we experience trauma or experience disappointment. My dear ones, when we pray together, we are inviting God to unite our hearts. We are inviting God to increase our mission beyond ourselves. We are generating devotion as we commune with them. I love what Spurgeon said in this regard. He said, it's in the spirit of prayer that our strength lies, and if we lose this, the locks will be shorn from Samson. And the church of God will become weak as water. And though we, as Samson did, go and try to shake ourselves, as at other times, we shall hear the cry, the Philistines be upon thee, and our eyes will be put out, and our glory will depart, unless we continue mighty and earnest in prayer. See, I know that there are those who feel like that God has given up on them. I know there are those who feel like that I have prayed and prayed and God has not answered. I mean, I have prayed for seven days and God is not answering my prayers. And our patience often resembles a child who yearns for a treat and they are refused. 
And I'd be willing to bet there's not a parent in here who, when their child has asked him for something and you said no, that you've never received this in reply, okay, thank you, loving parent, for considering my request. Instead, the usual response from our children was what? Whining, pouting, right? Because that's what a child does. Oh, may we as saints realize that such a countenance before an omniscient, holy, sovereign, loving, heavenly Father is not fitting for the worshiping, maturing child of God. God is pleased in our coming to him and our hearts can rest in our upper room as we humble ourselves before him. We confess our sins to one another. We learn to enjoy the hope of his activity in our lives as he sees fit. Instead of demanding what I think life has to be for me. I mean, left to ourselves and our desires, just on our own, of course I want things to work out. For me, true rest is the benefit of a life that welcomes God's activity through regular communion. And I love the way John Wesley put this. He was 73 years old when he related in his journal on June 28, 1776, that he was in a much better position to preach then at 73 than he was when he was 23. See, he traveled more than 4,000 miles a year. This is on horseback, and he said that this gave him exercise and change of air. He made a practice of getting up at 4 in the morning. And he said that he was always able to sleep immediately. Of course, he traveled like that on a horse. No wonder he could sleep immediately. But he said that in his entire life, he never lost a night of sleep. He experienced four illnesses that he said were to invigorate him. And then he wrote what he wrote about possessing what he called an evenness of temper. And he said, I feel and grieve, but by the grace of God, I fret at nothing. Now, that's a man who spent some time in his upper room. That's a man who's learned how to truly rest. I'm talking about the soul at rest. And that had emotional and, and physical manifestations. I see that no less miraculous than any other manifestation. And what I'm trying to say is these are things that are readily available to every believer. And where God wants us to live in the abundant life. I can't dictate how God is going to manifest himself to you outside of the fruit of the spirit in terms of ministry exploits. And I I praise God when he works, when he heals, and when he does whatever he wants to do. But let us not think he's not working if those things don't happen. And let us not think that we need to give up or be discouraged if those things don't happen. Because that's not where our motivation is found. I read a story of a woman by the name of Lindsay O'Connor who was in a two-month coma as a result of childbirth. 
The doctors considered her brain dead, at least brain damaged. Not brain dead, but brain damaged. For two months, did not respond to anything. But she was aware of everything going on. She could hear the conversations. She could hear the doctor and her husband talking about pulling the plug. She could hear about conversations about the will. She wanted to jump out of her body and show that she was alive, but she could do nothing. And she writes about how after two months she was able to awaken and even then couldn't move a whole lot. But she said that in spite of daily physical effects of the trauma, I've learned that radical obedience is worth any cost, that prayer is inconceivably important, that miracles still happen, that I have a faith worth dying for. And what I see in this is she represents to me what a church can be like or what individuals can be like with the appearance of being dead. Little activity. Nothing really going on. There's something inside that's churning. There's something calling us to step outside of the shell, to not be tethered to that past experience, to that past abuse, to that, to that past failure, to not letting shame rule our life. That God is calling us to step out of that deathbed and to allow the Holy Spirit to energize us for his service. And whatever may come, death, persecution, nothing will deter us from unstoppable obedience, from constant communion, because there I find my life. I may not have the bells and whistles, I may not have all the ministry exploits, but I can find my upper room. And I can have the Holy Spirit energize me daily for his service. Let's pray.